Well, if you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of the book of Revelation and at the end of the Bible itself. Just a couple of more chapters after this, uh, we still have a few more weeks to go over and some big giant stuff that we'll look at in this. And we have studied this stuff uh, each year for the last four years. We've taken a few weeks each fall to carefully work our way through verse by verse, not leaving anything out to go, God, what are you saying to us? There is this special uh, verse that we read in the, in the video that starts out every week that we will be blessed if we read this stuff and study it. And so, and we study this stuff because it's the last thing Jesus revealed to us through Scripture. I mean, quite literally, the last stuff He said. The book literally begins and ends with that promise of that, I am coming soon, be ready. And so we want to read this stuff and be ready. So we need to be ready. This is telling us uh, how to be ready um, and who God is. It's revealing His character. I've been learning so much more about God's character. We never stop learning about this, what God reveals through the Scripture. But what's so cool about the book of Revelation is it integrates so perfectly with both the Old and the New Testament. They go together. There's nothing that's contradictory. It pulls this all together. What's so very interesting to me is that this book is about our future. And you go like, uh, my future, Bentry? No, your future. That's why we're studying it. And here's the deal. If you are a Christian, this is your future. And if you're not a Christian, this is your future. I, I mean, as legit as I could say this, if, if I took my, uh, my trusty little iPhone into the future and took a picture of you at your job or your work and took a picture of your house and your address and I came back to now and I showed it to you and said, look, here you are. And as, as real as that would be, that's what these next few chapters are about. This is your future. For time's sake, if you're just joining us, I would encourage you to go back to at least the beginning of this volume in the series uh, that started this fall. You can listen to it online at, uh, or through the Bent Tree app. Hey, and listen, something, even if you don't go to Bent Tree, uh, and those that listen online, we've got people all over that listen, share that. Share it and say, hey, what God did for you through this. A lot of revelation, though, is imagery. Images that you can use to dive deeper. In other words, they give you a deeper meaning into what the scripture is about. But something happens in chapter 19 and chapter 20 that we're in today. It literally goes to a chronological advancement of time. One event, then another event that builds on top of it. That's why this part is so special. And where we left off last week is the millennial reign of Christ Jesus or what we call the thousand-year reign. Millennial means a thousand-year. Reign of Christ on the earth. We have been teaching this pre-millennial doctrine of the end times. It's an open-handed thing. In other words, there are good theologians that say, no, it's an amillennial, meaning that it just represents something else. We don't believe that here. But it's okay to believe that. What it means is we believe that these events to be real events in the future of a 1,000-year reign of Christ, ruling on the earth with the resurrected saints from Adam all the way through the end of the tribulation. 
And we've learned last week that there will be two distinct groups on earth during that thousand year reign. The resurrected saints, you who are in Christ now, you will re- rule along with Christ Jesus and the unresurrected saints. They are Christians. They have bodies like you or I, but they're not resurrected. They're just human beings. We learned last week that the, the physical earth is not remade yet, but clearly improved, vastly improved of what it is now. It is healed to nearly perfect conditions every way you can think of. Food, ecology, weather, we learn that people of this time will multiply quickly and spread over the earth with much longer lives. At first, only believers will be on the earth, but as the next generation and the next generation uh, come along, they will not all be believers. In fact, some will reject Jesus. Today, as we are going to be looking at four big questions, first, how how and why would the descendants of Christians, uh, Christians turn their back and reject Jesus? Turn their back on Jesus. And I mean, how could they turn away and reject Jesus? You th- see what I mean? I mean, he's physically on earth. We're going to look at that. And he's ruling. How could they turn their back? Second, we'll answer the question uh, from two weeks ago. Why would God uh, allow Satan and all of his demons out of the abyss or the bottomless pit at the end of the thousand-year reign? Why would he do that? Third, how does this thousand-year reign come to an end? Uh, Or to ask it a little bit differently, how does the world end, right? Kind of sums it up pretty nicely. And then what comes next? What does this say? We're going to answer all those in detail today, but let's jump in with a prayer. Would you bow your head with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we worship you for all you've done, for all you are. We worship you, God. Along with my brothers and sisters, we have raised our voices in song. We have worshiped you in the giving of our tithes and Offerings, God, you gave us that money to begin with. We give you just a portion back. God, we have made this day holy in our lives by making a day where we rest, where we don't do any of our regular work, where we come together in this part of town to worship as brothers and sisters. We've come here to make much of you. So, Father, we come now to open your words of Scripture. Holy Spirit, we invite you to unpack the deep meaning of of the Bible in our lives. May we not be the same when we leave this place. Let it change us. Let it complete us. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Amen. Well, let's get our notes out. Let's get our coffee ready because we need coffee, amen. And we're going to do that. Let's pick it up just before we, where we left off last time. Chapter 20, verse six. Follow along as we read this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Look at that. If you are a Christian right now, you are blessed and holy. Because you will be part of the first resurrection from the dead. Jesus was the first person resurrected from the dead after being in the grave three days. He's resurrected by God. Can I get a big amen? 
who are the Christians that follow is the question that, or the answer that 1 Thessalonians gives us. It tells us of a great day, of a day called the rapture, the dead in Christ, those who have gone on before, will ascend to heaven. They're already in heaven, but their bodies will meet them. They will be given a resurrected body. But then we who are still alive will be caught up in the air to meet him. I love this. We will be given new bodies at that time. Resurrected bodies. Bodies Bodies that will never die. Bodies that are capable of truly reflecting God's glory. Bodies that will not be able to sin. No temptation. It will be with these bodies that we will reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Bodies that will constantly renew. These bodies will be able to go back and forth between earth and heaven and heaven and earth on a regular basis. It is these bodies we will rule the earth from under the leadership of King Jesus. But what I want you to see, two other things in verse 6. Number one, the second death has no power over them. This is huge to understand. What does that mean? Well, we looked at this last week, but quickly it will, uh, it will make a little bit more sense in just a few minutes. But the second death is separation from God. First death is your throat, right? You're dead. Uh, your physical body, you, you are never separated from your spirit. You are a spirit. You have a body. Do you see what I mean? We will not experience the second death, which is separation from God. The second death is judgment for sin. It literally means hell for eternity. So if that second death has no power over us, that means we will never experience it. If we are in Christ Jesus, if we are saved. Second, we will be priests of God and of Christ. Meaning we will have direct access to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you go, we've got direct access now. No, we don't. We actually have it through Christ Jesus, His death. He is our mediator to God the Father. Then we will have perfect fellowship. Nothing at all separating us. And so we will be priests. Now, if you're in the Catholic kind of background and, and you kind of look at me, sometimes every once in a while someone will call and be a priest. I go, no, baby, that's not me. That's not me. Jesus is your high priest. Amen. But for us, when we are in heaven, for those on earth, we will be conduits to God, to those on earth. It's going to be an amazing peace there. We don't bring them salvation. But we will have full, unfettered access to God. The Apostle Paul says we will even rule angels. I don't know what that means, to tell you the truth. I just don't. But then look at verse 7. Describes the ending of the thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. It switches there and it says Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the their number is like the sand of the sea. A couple of really big things here you need to get first. First, who has the power to let Satan and his demons, his fallen angels out of the, the uh, abyss? Who has that power? God does. God does. Only God. So why on earth or in heaven, why would God allow Satan to ruin this perfectly good and kind of new and proved earth at the end of this thousand year reign? What is Gog and Magog? 
Well, let me answer that one first. Gog and Magog are the names of ancient enemies that were uh, enemies of God's people back way back in the Old Testament times. Magog, we think, is the nation. It's in where uh, southern Russia is now. That's where it would have been. And Gog is their ruler. So Gog and Magog will attack. What God is doing, he's using this word picture to show you God is using that name to link back to prophecy in the Old Testament. In answering why would God allow Satan to ruin this world by releasing him back into it, there's a clue in who Satan gathers together. It says from the four corners of the earth. That's not to say the earth is square. Sometimes people look at biblical uh, guys, they go, oh, the earth, they thought the earth was flat. How can we trust them? Listen to me. No one ever really thought the earth was flat. They just didn't. That was science that taught that. In the scriptures, it's always been round. And you go, well, why are the four corners of the earth? There's no four. Yes, there are. Look at the compass, north, south, east, west. That's what that means. Do you see that? Now, meaning every part of the earth, people will come uh, from this perfect world or nearly perfect, uh, Satan will be able to recruit evil people. Now, here's what you need to understand. To end the millennial reign, God will allow Satan to attract all the evil people alive on the earth to himself. God will allow Satan to attract all the evil, evil people alive on the earth to himself. This is an important thing. You've wondered this, haven't you? Satan and his demons will work like an evil magnet, right? Uh, they will draw people who were not part of God's elect. We're going to see that in a few minutes. He draws them out from among the saved. Satan is let loose to reveal the true character of people. They are brought into final judgment. They won't be able to stand on their grandpa's, I, he was a Baptist preacher. They're gonna, he's going to draw them out if they're not saved. Now how is that possible? Because remember, the earth is much more improved than it is now. And how could there be evil people on earth, especially if Satan and his demons have been locked up for the last thousand years? Doesn't he cause all the evil on the earth? No. He doesn't. And especially since this first generation were all saved, how are there evil people on the earth? The answer lies in what you and I wrestle with every day. Until we have been resurrected. My body still wants to sin. I am still tempted to sin every day. I am tempted to sin. It's only by God's, God's grace that I'm saved by the blood of Christ Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm being remade new in the ways to feel with my heart. I'm given a new heart and been given a new mind. Slowly but surely, he's changing the way I think. All of that, being saved, being remade into the image of Jesus, all of that is the grace of God. Not just your salvation, all of it, your redemption, how you grow. Not because I'm worth it. Or that I was good enough, or am good enough, or that I made some kind of decision, but that Jesus himself called me from being dead to being alive. Do you see how that works? Here's what you need to hear. Here's the thing. You've got to grasp this. If you are not in Christ Jesus, 
It doesn't matter how good the earth is, how perfect it is, how many good deeds you do, what your job is. It does not matter who your daddy is, how successful you are, who your family is, how much money you have, or even if you live to a literal 900 plus years old physically. You cannot be good enough for God. You just can't. You and I are tempted with sin in this body, in these physical bodies like we have right now. We will always go back to sin unless Jesus redeems us. Like the great hymn says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Some of you are going, Paul, I'm like new. I didn't know you sang in, in services. It's something weird I do. I just, I just like to do it. Even then, in this near-perfect world, Christians still sin. It's just that Jesus' blood pays for my sin. If I am in Christ Jesus, it's the reason that we don't lose our salvation. Some of you wrestle with this doctrine, so you need to listen really close. Jesus is the one who keeps us saved, not us. And you go, no, no, Paul, I'm the one that... No, no, you didn't. We are saved because He chose us, not because we chose Him. And don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I chose Jesus, but it was after He had called me to life from the spiritual death I was in. And once He does, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.13, he says, in Him, talking about Jesus, in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And you say, yeah, see, Paul, I believed. No, look what happened first. You heard the word of truth. He woke the dead. He calls dead people to life. He says, look, you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the story of Jesus, of your salvation. And when you believed, salvation for those people on earth in the millennial reign will just be, be just like it is for us now who are believers. We either believe Jesus to be the Son of God and place our faith in Him as our Savior and King before we die, or we don't. And remember, there are only two teams, God and Satan. And you go, well, I currently remain unaffiliated. No, you come prepackaged on Satan's team. That's just how we are. We're all fallen. We're all spiritually dead until we hear that gospel. But you're probably asking, how on earth, a nearly perfect earth too, could someone choose Satan over Jesus? You're like, I just don't buy that. I mean, Jesus is right there physically. How can someone turn away from him? The answer, Judas did. Judas had been right next to him for three years. I mean, he had sat around the campfire with him, heard Jesus teach, talk, you know, as they were fading off to sleep. He had seen him feed the thousands. He had seen people raised from the dead. And Judas rejects him. 
Oh, he knew who he was. Many that followed him turned away. So did they lose their salvation? No. And you go, Paul, Paul, I'm just confused. Listen to me. They were never saved to begin with. But they seemed like they were. Now you need to listen like your eternal soul depends on it. Because it does. There are lots of those. Those who appear saved. They know who Jesus is. They have not placed their faith in him. But there is no relationship with Jesus there. It's just a shell. I fear for some of you. I do. Like you say you're a Christian and you might even believe, but there's no life change in you. And don't hear me say, if you would just start acting better, you'd be saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's the result. You have no relationship with Jesus. Here's the thing. When the Bible talks about being saved, it uses three tenses. Past past tense, present tense, future tense. Almost always, listen close, the Bible says when it uses the word saved, it's a future tense. But our English word saved is a past tense word. Is your mind just, it's, it's about to get really sticky in here. Listen, that's why when I ask people that I'm baptizing, I've baptized many of you, I say, do you believe Jesus' death on the cross atoned for your sin, paid for your sins, past tense? Present, future. You've heard me say that hundreds of times. You go, how could that be possible? That's why I ask them that. Because think of it. If Jesus' death pays for my sins in my past, before I was a Christian, does that mean I'm saved? Yes. But remember, saved is a future tense word. So if he pays for my sins in my past and I'm saved in the future tense, he also pays for my sins in the present. You with me? Think of it like this. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus, say a hearty amen right now. Amen. Amen. But none of you are standing in heaven. None of you are standing in heaven. I see you right here. So how can you say you're saved since it's a future thing? This is how. Because you say it in faith. You are demonstrating your faith. You are saying, my sins are forgiven in the past. They're forgiven in the present. They're forgiven in the future. I don't have to be good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. Do you see that? This is so important. In a very real way, a Christian lives their lives by saying these three things. I was saved. Praise God. I remember the day on my front porch praying with my brother Ted. Asking Jesus into my life. Jesus, you're my king. I was saved in 1974. I am being saved right now. You know... I struggle with temptation. Anyone else? Sometimes I sin. I'm being saved. He's refining me. And praise God, there will be a day I hear a trumpet sound and I will be saved. Do you understand the difference? 
Okay, back to Revelation. we got to move. Satan is loose with his demons and they attract all the evil people in the world to them. So how do these people plan on attacking Christ Jesus and His people? Watch this as this battle unfolds. This is not Armageddon. This is a thousand years later. Verse 9, They came across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints. The beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This is not much of a battle. They come to Israel once again. The holy city they surrounded. Fire comes down. Jesus doesn't even have to say anything this time. Not even Jesus fights. fights. It just, they're just destroyed. And we call this the last battle. Do you know why we call it the last battle? Because it's the last battle. Battle ever. Ever. Check out verse 10. This is the moment that many of you have been waiting for. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch, oh witch, the witch is dead. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. I, I love this. I mean, God's enemy is thrown into hell. But check out that thing. Satan has been cut off. He's not killed. He is in the place prepared for him. He is pre- hell is prepared for Satan and his followers, his demons. It's built for angels. And look at the beast and the false prophet. They've been there for a thousand years. The two that deceived so many during the tribulation, they are there and they've been there for a thousand years. Satan never gets out again. Can I get an Amen. Here is this forever. He is in conscious torture. Here's what you need to understand. If hell wasn't created for people, why are they there? They've rejected Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. And will be there for eternity. Hell was created to punish Satan as his demons. Now look at verse 11. The scene changes. This is major big. Major big. Look at what the Apostle John describes to us. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. And no place was found for them. Literally, this is judgment day. The final one. I say final one because there's been three judgment days now, if you include this one. You go, Paul, I must have missed that. No, you, you got them. The first judgment day was just after the rapture. All of the saints are home. And you go, what judgment day? It's a judgment for works, for Christians. It's our reward. It's when Jesus said, hey, you took this I gave you and you turned it into that. And so here's your reward. The second judgment was the judgment of the nations during the seven years of the tribulation. God pours out his wrath on the world and baby, it is ugly. This is the third and final judgment. The last one described here, notice that it does not take place on earth or heaven. We don't know where it takes place. We just don't know. 
Uh, the judgment must take place in some inter intermediate location, not heaven or earth. Earth is gone right now uh, between heaven and where earth once was. Earth has been destroyed. We'll look at this next week with a new heaven and a new earth. God willing, we'll look at that. So who is the one described as being on the throne of judgment? Here it is. On the day, on judgment day, the judge seated on the throne is Jesus Christ. Some of you didn't expect that, did you? Some of you thought, this is God the Father. Mm. This is Jesus. This is unlike any other courtroom drama you've ever watched. Jesus Christ has opened the seals of the wrath of God the Father back in chapter 6 of Revelation. You'll remember that. It is Jesus Himself who said, I tread the winepress and the fierceness of the wrath of God back in chapter 19. There is no one else better qualified to judge the dead than Jesus Christ. This is scary. But understand, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are saved, you will not be at this judgment. This is as close as you'll ever see it is Pastor Paul reading about it. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 12, he says, I saw also the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Think about all the dead who are not in Christ Jesus. This is the one and only group here. All the way from Cain, who killed his brother Abel, Adam's son, all the way through the last one killed in the last battle that we just read. Billions of dead who are not in Christ. It says in the second half of that verse, and books were opened and another book was opened, and which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Listen very carefully. I want you to see two things here. First, books as in plural. Look at the S on the end of books. Plural books are opened. And second, another book, singular book is opened and it will be used for a different purpose. Now we call this the great white throne judgment. Jesus is seated on this massive throne and maybe you have the wrong idea here. Maybe you have the wrong idea here because I've run a lot of, across a lot of Christians that do. Write this down. The purpose of the great white throne judgment is not, underline not like three times, not to determine if someone will be saved. The very fact that they're there means that they're not saved. The very fact that someone is facing judgment means that they are guilty. Listen, you come into this life guilty. That literally, that's literally why we uh, they are standing here at this judgment. So write this down. The purpose of the great white throne judgment is to judge the level of their evil works and the rejection of Christ Jesus. Now, why would they do that? By the way, where we have been talking about open-handed issues, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, this is suddenly a closed issue. All true Christians believe this. There will be a judgment day. Someone tells you there is no hell, run from that. False teacher, not a believer. 
And you go, no, I don't believe there's a hell. I don't believe there's a That's because you trust your own faith in your own self, not the Word of God. See, what we do here is we read Scripture and we say, what does Scripture say? And we answer that by reading it. All Christians agree on this closed-handed issue. All real Christians believe there will be a judgment day. The purpose of this judgment is not to determine if someone will be saved. The judgment is on the evil works of the unsaved, including their rejection of Christ. Everyone is there because they are unrighteous. Look at verse 13. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one as judged, was judged according to their works. Underline this. Each one was judged according to their works. They were judged according to their works. This is not for salvation. This is hard stuff. I don't, I don't mean that it's difficult to understand because it's not difficult. I'm saying it's painful to understand. This is what we've looked at briefly last week. These people are raised back to life. They have been in the place of the dead for how long they've been physically dead. In a place the Greek calls Hades. Hell-like, but not hell. But now they are raised back to life and given a new body, listen to me, similar to your new body that you will be raised with. And you go, why on earth would they be given a new body like us? They're going to need the body to handle the rigors of hell for all eternity. One that cannot die. One that cannot be damaged. They'll need to be fitted with this new body that can last for all eternity. By the way, we don't ever treat anyone going to hell lightly. I've said to hell with you before. I can't think of a, a worse. I can't think of a worse judgment. Conscious, real punishment for all eternity. The first, set of, the first set of books, plural, are records of every detail about a person's life. We could stop and preach a series right here. Every thought, every action, God is recording all of those. Here's what you need to understand. There will be gradations of punishment in hell. Look where it says each one will be a judge, will be judged according to their works. Some of you are still not getting it. Here it is. Judgment is carried out individually and the level of punishment in hell is based on each person's own evil works. Like, do you get this? Christians are judged according to our works uh, for a reward. The reward we get. But salvation, we are judged based according to Christ's righteousness. Not because of our good works. Because of Jesus' blood, we're saved. Our sin deserves death. But Jesus paid for those already on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Amen. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you are not covered by the blood, it's all on you, baby. So good luck. And the more evil you have done in your life, the more sin, the deeper level of punishment, a deeper level of hell waits you. By the way, there's something strange this brings up. 
A doctrine you may not get off the top of your head. But you know it. If God is sovereign, means He controls everything, every molecule, all through time. Uh, and if He controls life and death, that would mean an evil person that lives long would get more punishment in hell. Because they have racked up more sin to pay for. They are on their own account, pain and hell. Have you ever thought of this? Have you ever thought of this? You see someone who's obviously evil that is prospering in this life. Like they're making money. They're like doing everything. Has it ever occurred to you that God is allowing that going, hey, you're racking it up. It's like ding, 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 ding. You see what I mean? Likewise, if God takes an evil person out young, in a sense, that's also God's grace. That he cannot have more sin, time to sin, because he's dead he would still go to hell, but it wouldn't be as bad as, say, Hitler or an abortion doctor. By the way, does that shock you that I would equate Hitler and an abortion doctor? Oh, we need to apologize to the SS. We just do. But even Hitler, even an abortion doctor, could have sins washed away. Because of Jesus' blood on the cross. If they will turn to it. What I'm saying is that all sin will get you into hell if you are not a, in Christ Jesus. For all eternity. But for some, the fire and torture will be hotter. Look at verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. These two are not people, by the way. They are twin results of sin and the fall of mankind. They served a purpose when we are in this life. But now they are thrown into hell too. Amen? They're gone. Sin and death. The, this verse 15 answers why the second book, singular, is so important and why it's open. Verse 15. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life here. The book of life. If your name is not written in this book, you are, if your name is written in this book, you are saved. You are a believer. You are an elect of God since before creation. Some of you, your brains are about to trip here. Remember back in Revelation 17, verse 8, we read this. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. Reformed theology only looks at scripture and says our names, if we are the elect, our God chose us in advance. Some of you reject that. It's an open-handed issue, but the book of life proves my point. Let me land the plane here with just a few thoughts. Next week we get to the exciting stuff, a new heaven and a new earth. The Apostle Paul tells us in one of my, I guess probably my favorite scripture, uh, Romans 8, 28. How many of you just love this scripture? I know a lot of you do. Some of you don't understand it. Look at it with me. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. How many things work together? all throughout time two things for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose 
We love this verse, don't we? But I think most of us here don't really understand it. If God's perfect providence, in other words, His plan for the world, God puts together every event in life, even the suffering, even temptation, even sin, He does it all to accomplish His plan in life, both now and for our eternal benefit. Let me read that again for you. God puts together every event in life, even the suffering, even temptation and sin. He does it all to accomplish His plan in life, now and for our eternal benefit. That is what you are seeing here at the end of judgment. God is in control. But how did God know what to do with us? Verse 29 says, For those He foreknew, Underline that word. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's powerful. Oh, don't lose me. Don't lose me. This is so important. Don't miss this. Look at that phrase. He foreknew. That doesn't mean he simply looked and noticed in time and said, oh, I think that person was going to say yes and that person's going to say yes. And since they said yes to me, then I'll work out everything. Some of you have that idea in your mind. Get rid of it. It is unbiblical. It is ungodly. Because it makes you think it's all about your decision. And if you follow, God was not taking a chance with us coming to him. God's not up in heaven, like, you know, twirling his thumbs going, oh man, I hope they come to me. He called you. God wakes the dead. It's telling us he, a predetermined choice God makes here. He chooses to set his love on us. How do I know that? Remember, we look at the words, not what we think, not what we feel. We look at the words of Scripture. Predestined is the Greek proorizo. Proorizo means to mark out, to appoint, or determine beforehand. Do you understand what it's saying? God determined before the foundation of the earth you would be His. He said, this is you. God chooses us. And let me say, He chose you. You. Yes, you. You made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. You came to that realization. Praise God. But it was the Holy Spirit of God that gave you that realization. Are you with me? He woke you up from spiritual death to follow Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel does, the story of Jesus. If we preach it, it wakes God's elect from the dead. God has chosen His people to be recreated in the likeness of His Son, Jesus. And sure, you could say, well, why me, God? Uh, why did you choose me? I'm, I'm a bad person. I had that conversation three or four times this week. You, he, I'm not a good enough person. And I go, and you don't get what salvation is about. Sure, you can say, why me, God? Why did you choose me? Or you can simply say, God, make me like Jesus. Make me into Jesus. Look at verse 30. This is beautiful. 
And those he predestined, prorizo, he also called. In those he called, he also justified. In those he justified, he also glorified. Look at this. Write it down here. God predestined. I did not make this up. This is what the Reformation was about. The Catholic Church had come to the point going, well, if you give enough money to the Pope so he can build the Vatican, by the way, you can buy your, your friends and your relatives out of hell. It's going to cost you, though. Or if you help enough old ladies across the street, if you feed enough homeless people, if you're good enough, and if you don't do any mortal sin, then maybe God will see your faith and then save you. Baloney, baloney, baloney. Martin Luther and great reformers of that time saw to it. And they said, look, we come by faith alone. We come to Jesus and that is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Nothing else. He predestined us. He chose us from before time to be His. And look at this. He called that's what that verse says. Listen, I'm not saying this. This is straight from Scripture. You go, why study Revelation? Listen, some of you needed to study it a long time ago because you thought all of salvation was about you. Literally, He woke us from spiritual death that we were in from the fall. Once we heard that call, we responded. We chose Jesus. You go, Paul, I chose Jesus. He didn't choose me. <laughs> Get the picture of, you know, Lazarus he raised from the dead. He's wrapped in the clothes, right? And it did, did Lazarus go, hey, I think I'll be not dead now. And in any moment, Jesus is going to call me. No. God raised him from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. He heard the voice of God because he was alive. He heard Jesus' voice. He decided to get up because he heard the call. And you did too. Listen to me. This is the cool part. God justified. Jesus' death on the cross pays for our sin as the perfect sacrifice. And that righteousness of his sinless life is credited to our account. His death is an atonement for our sin. His life for our righteousness. Any pastor that says Jesus' death, oh, that's not an atonement. That was just a good example for you. That guy's lost in his, his sins. Hopefully he'll wake up. Look at this. God glorified. Notice that's a past tense word. Because just like all the others, we are saved. One day, we will be in heaven. One day soon, God will glorify us. Meaning, He will take us home. Amen? Amen. But until then, listen, until then, our job is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you didn't pay attention to anything, listen to my words carefully. Because this is your purpose. The story of Jesus' death, His atonement for the sins of His people is your message that you are to take to those people in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbor, that weird guy at soccer practice, right? 
to share the life-saving message of Jesus. So you go, well, Paul, if we're the elect, don't we just get saved? God has told us that what wakes the dead is the gospel. And he says, your job, the last thing he told us, he says, your job is to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Every people group. Some of you are being called to move away from Loveland, Colorado. Maybe it's to... Maybe it's to the Middle East. Maybe it's to the hardest-reached parts of Africa. Maybe God is calling you to plant a church in northern Colorado, to join with us, to share the gospel. But your purpose in life, if you are a believer, is to call the dead to life through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry when I've soft-souled the gospel. God, I'm sorry when I've treated the gospel like something that if I could convince something that they will be saved. God, as a church right now, on this behalf of my brothers and sisters, I pray that you use us to share the gospel with those at work in the cubicle next to us. Those above us, those are, that report to us, God, that we would be a picture, that our eyes would be open that we would call people from life, from death to life by your gospel. And God, I'm sorry when I've ever treated it like your gospel was because I was good enough, that I kept enough rules, that I was able to get there and I kept myself saved. God, thank you for revealing your truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone. As you continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, here's the thing you need to understand. You can know who Jesus is and still go to hell. It's when you proclaim him as your king, you go inside Jesus. We, you've heard me say over and over, those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how you are in Christ Jesus. You say, I believe, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I place my trust in him as Savior and Lord. You have called me to life. And so I repent of all the things I've done in my past. I turn from them. God, I thank you that I was saved on Calvary. I thank you that I am being saved right now as I live with this temptation-filled world and body. God, I thank you that I will be saved. With Jesus, you call us home. So you can have all my tomorrows. You can have all my plans. And end your prayer like this. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Listen, until then, our job is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you didn't pay attention to anything, listen to my words carefully. Because this is your purpose. 
The story of Jesus' death, his atonement for the sins of his people is your message that you are to take to those people in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbor, that weird guy at soccer practice, right? To share the life-saving message of Jesus. So you go, well, Paul, if we're the elect, don't we just get saved? God has told us that what wakes the dead is the gospel. And he says, your job, the last thing he told us, he says, your job is to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Every people group. Some of you are being called to move away from Loveland, Colorado. Maybe it's to... Maybe it's to the Middle East. Maybe it's to the hardest reached parts of Africa. Maybe God is calling you to plant a church in northern Colorado, to join with us, to share the gospel. But your purpose in life, if you are a believer, is to call the dead to life through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry when I've soft-souled the gospel. God, I'm sorry when I've treated the gospel like something that if I could convince something that they will be saved. God, as a church right now, on this behalf of my brothers and sisters, I pray that you use us to share the gospel with those at work in the cubicle next to us. Those above us, those are, that report to us, God, that we would be a picture, that our eyes would be open that we would call people from life, from death to life by your gospel. And God, I'm sorry when I've ever treated it like your gospel was because I was good enough, that I kept enough rules, that I was able to get there and I kept myself saved. God, thank you for revealing your truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone. As you continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, here's the thing you need to understand. You can know who Jesus is and still go to hell. It's when you proclaim him as your king, you go inside Jesus. We, you've heard me say over and over, those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how you are in Christ Jesus. You say, I believe, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I place my trust in him as Savior and Lord. You have called me to life. And so I repent of all the things I've done in my past. I turn from them. God, I thank you that I was saved on Calvary. I thank you that I am being saved right now as I live with this temptation-filled world and body. God, I thank you that I will be saved. With Jesus, you call us home. So you can have all my tomorrows. You can have all my plans. And end your prayer like this. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.